Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Chris Bailey. He's a productivity consultant, researcher, and best-selling author. Being productive is great. Everyone wants to get more done in less time and achieve their goals, but overshooting your tolerance for work can result in misery, fatigue, loss of creativity, and days in bed. Finding a balance between the grind and being calm is vital. Expect to learn the scientific theory explaining why burnout exists, why calmness and productivity are intrinsically linked, how being dopamine-driven is a dangerous motivator, how to slow down without feeling idle and lazy, the science of savoring life, why people who watch the news get more PTSD than people who experienced a bombing attack, and much more. Heads up that this Saturday there is no episode again. It is New Year's Eve, and I figured I would leave you to whatever debauchery you have planned for yourself. But this January has the largest episode release that I've ever done. Flew to Las Vegas to record with one of the biggest guests in the world, and I cannot wait to release this. It is killing me to sit on such a good episode and not be able to say or announce who it is. Uh, but very soon I will be able to. And uh, yeah, this it's it's beyond anything that we've done so far. So get ready for that one. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025 and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by whoop 
I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Bailey. You have written two books, two best-selling books on productivity. Yeah. And now you're writing a book about calmness and how to calm your mind. What yeah. got, what gets you interested in working out how to calm your mind? Yeah, this book was honestly a, a lot tougher to write than the other two. Uh, you know, we were chatting before. There are no productivity emergencies out there. Maybe, maybe there's a couple that I haven't heard of. Uh, but if you're a doctor, there are medical emergencies, but there aren't productivity <laughs> emergencies. Uh, and it, it was really kind of an urgency, though, in my own life that led me to write this this book called How to Calm Your Mind. I, I was not in a good place uh, a few years ago. Uh, I was anxious. I was burnt out. Uh, and this all culminated. A lot of this was happening beneath the the depths of my awareness at the time and this all crescendoed on stage for me i was on stage in front of about a hundred people uh giving a, a talk on productivity of course uh, and i noticed when i got up on the stage that beads of sweat started to form on the back of my neck uh, i felt as though I, I was struggling to get my words out like my tongue had to dance around a bunch of marbles inside my mouth and I I started just stammering and stumbling on my every word and I realized up there you know right when I wanted to kind of flee <laughs> the stage I was having an anxiety attack uh, in front of this audience um, and I, I had taken on too much stress I had taken on uh, just too many commitments in, in my work uh, and in my life I had too much chronic stress and found myself kind of picking up the pieces after this episode um, where I realized I was burnt out, I was anxious, uh, and I had been investing in self-care quite a bit up to that point. Uh, and that's kind of what baffled me at the time and got me to look at the research out there and talk to experts to try to honestly desperately try to solve this in my own life. Uh, I hadn't really thought about a book at the time because you know, when you're in kind of an emergency like that, that's the last thing on your mind. You're just trying to, oh, you're just trying to get through. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how this journey began. Was there any shame associated with being the productivity guy yeah. who also kind of doesn't seem to be holding it together while supposedly talking about his uh, mastermind topic? Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. You know, I thought, you know, I think a big part of that was we, we tend to buy into these narratives that other people tell us about ourselves. Uh, and that was a big part of my own story is buying into this story that people had shared in, in intros and in bios and in, in blurbs leading up to that point where honestly, and this sounds kind of ridiculous looking back on it, but I think a big part of me thought that I was unstoppably productive, that there were really no limits to how much I could get done as if the endorsements were were true, <laughs> you know, that that I was kind of unstoppable or this superhuman. I, I don't know. I, I don't even want to regurgitate the, the different words that people use to to describe my work. But of course, you know, we all have these normal human boundaries. And I think that was kind of an internal reckoning that I had to go through that there was this story that I had told myself about myself, that I had constructed my identity out of this superhumanly productive kind of narrative. And it, it just wasn't true because, of course, it's not true. It's, it's the most obvious thing in the world. We all have normal limits. So, yeah, the, this, I, I love the question. Yeah, there definitely was shame. Mm. Yeah, I, uh, I think reflecting on Jordan Peterson over the last couple of years is a good example. A psychiatrist mm. that was telling everybody to carry a burden and be honest and truthful and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, people, um, his detractors online, took a great amount of joy in pointing out the fact that he was the person that was addicted to benzodiazepines for a good while. Yeah. He was the guy that was on antidepressants. He was the psychiatrist that couldn't get stuff to work. Yeah. You think, yeah, it, it is... The expectation adds another layer of um, guilt and shame and yeah. um, perspective that isn't helpful on top of already your own expectations of yourself. Yeah, and we already construct our, our self-identities on shaky ground. You know, we construct them on top of our success at work, for example. But when that success goes away, we, we feel like we're kind of losing a part of who we are. And you're so right. There, there is that expectation. I think it comes with expertise. Uh, and I, I see a lot of happiness experts out there who go through periods of depression. Uh, I see a lot of experts on meditation who fall off the way. I see a lot of lazy productivity experts out there, too, myself included. It's what drives me to explore these subjects of productivity. Uh, and, and I think we kind of need that contrast in a way to realize how well the best strategies work not only for us but for other people yeah. what have you come to learn about burnout then it seems mm. like this was a period of extreme burnout for you uh yeah. what, what did you not know before that now seems completely obvious yeah it, it's what burnout even is you know you know I, I think you've had folks on the podcast who talk, who've chatted about burnout but in my mind i thought it was just burnt out you know it, burnout is exhaustion right if we're completely wiped we're completely depleted we're burnt out. But realizing that exhaustion is just a third of the picture of burnout was one of the most surprising things that I myself discovered. And it explained a lot of how I was feeling at the time. Exhaustion is a, a core component of burnout, but it's only a third of the burnout equation as defined by uh, researchers like Christina Maslach and the World Health Organization. We need to be exhausted, right? That feeling of being just totally depleted. Uh, but we also need to feel cynical. We need to feel as though there is this uh, negative attitude just that pervades everything that we do. That's the second attribute of burnout. And the third is 
un, unproductive, right? We need to feel as though what we're doing doesn't make a difference. And like we have nothing left in the tank to make a difference with who we are. Uh, and it's the confluence of those three ingredients, exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy that produces full-blown burnout phenomenon that's caused by one thing and one thing only, and that's chronic stress. Any source of stress we face repeatedly is something that can cause burnout. And the more sources of chronic stress, some of them are obvious, right? Financial concerns, just, you know, marital stress, all, all these different sources that we can see. But a lot of it's hidden, right? The threatening information that we choose to pay attention to on social media, on the news, simply because it's familiar, can lead us to that point of burnout. Uh, but also the factors of our work that contribute to a full-blown burnout phenomenon. Uh, there's six of them, in fact. And so the more in alignment we are uh, with these six factors, the more engaged we become and the less burnt out we become. Uh, but these six areas of our work are also the, the petri dishes that the chronic stress of our work can incubate inside of. Um, and so those are how much work we have on our plate, whether we're rewarded fairly. And that's that goes to money, that goes to social rewards, that goes to being recognized for the contributions that we make. Uh, control is a third one. Uh, so whether or not we feel we have control over when, where, and how we do our, our work. Community. So whether we feel connected with people around us, the less community we have, the more likely we are to burn out. Fairness. We need to be treated fairly. And values. So whether we feel as though we can manifest our values through our actions at work. And when we do that, we feel like there's meaning behind what we're doing because we can observe our behavior and connect those with who we truly are. Uh, but when we don't value the work that we do or we don't have that deeper connection, we're out of alignment and we're more likely to burn out. And so, you know, just in case people don't read the book, no pressure, obviously, but I want to kind of share those six factors, charting how well you're doing in those six areas over time, uh, workload, control, reward, uh, community, fairness, and values, and noticing that you're on the stepping stones to that full-blown burnout phenomenon, even if you're cynical and not exhausted, or even if you feel profoundly unproductive, but you have more than enough energy, these three attributes can serve as kind of stepping stones to a full-blown burnout phenomenon. That's interesting. What are some yeah. of the ways that people can better notice what's going on and self-regulate? Because this yeah. is, th th these are emotions. They're going on inside of our head. There is no external scoreboard that's going to tell us where we're at with our cynicism or energy or yeah. productivity. Uh, what yeah. are some of the ways people can self-regulate? Uh, one of my favorite ways, and I'd be lying if I said I did this every week or even every month, uh, but since going through that burnout, I do this every probably three or four months or so or wh whenever I'm feeling exhausted or wiped or I have that kind of dread on Sunday that I have to work again the following morning. That That's kind of my cue to to pick up where I left off here. And I just have a spreadsheet. So I rate how well I'm doing in each of these six areas out of 10. And it's pretty informal. Uh, I haven't seen 
uh, a ton of evidence uh, behind this particular tactic, but it does feed into the wealth of evidence out there, especially, uh, you know, workload is one to pay a particular mind to because that's often one of the primary contributors to burnout. And it's, in fact, in clinical settings, it's the first thing that they get you to look at. Uh, and, you know, they say, okay, can you cut back on workload? Because that really cuts back on how much burnout you have. But just charting how well you're doing in the six areas can really make a profound difference. And you can notice a trend line over time. So if you notice that since, you know, COVID, for example, your line has been ticking upwards and uh, along that upward tick, you're starting to feel more tired and cynical and unproductive. That's probably why. You mentioned all of the different contributing factors that come from work. There are two yeah. broad cohorts of people, right? One are employed and have a boss and have yeah. a relatively limited amount of control over the work that they do. And yeah. another one would be someone that's self-employed and yeah. is their own boss. Is there anything that you've come to believe about the interesting distinction between the two, how they should regulate their burnout and their workload and the social uh, respect that they get from the work that they do? Is there something unique about those two cohorts? Yeah, the the fascinating thing is it really does vary. And, and so, you know, for advice on calm, anxiety, productivity, even uh, one one thing I really believe is we have to take the advice that works for us and leave the rest. Uh, there is no advice that works universally well for, and it, even if there are these six universal factors, uh, control is is the fascinating one I find. You know, especially with regard to how much autonomy we have in our work. Um, you know, we we may not have control over what we work on, but in ideal circumstances, regardless of whether we work for somebody else or ourselves. Um, we often have control of when we work on something and how we execute it. God, I, you know, I hope, <laughs> I hope that's the case with us because so many of us do knowledge work for a living that uh, takes advantage of our unique mind and perspective and skills and expertise and experience. Um, and, and so we should fight for control however we can. And, you know, one thing that I found fascinating in looking at the research as well is often Burnout, it's our responsibility to deal with when we go through an episode of burnout, but it's usually not our fault. You know, it's kind of the the fault of whoever creates the conditions with where we work. Uh, and so if you're a manager, that, that's something I would highlight in addition to, the, to this. Uh, if you're a manager who has had employees that have burnt out, that should be your tripwire. That should be your, you know, your alarm bell. That something in the workplace that you're cultivating for people is fundamentally uh, broken and toxic. And the the key there, I think, is realizing that it, burnout is you know not being burnt out is not really a luxury. We need to not we need to be past the point of not burnt out. Uh, burnout exists on a spectrum. Uh, one side is burnt out where we're exhausted, we're cynical, we're unproductive, and on the other side. We're fired up. We have this energy beneath what we do. We're engaged. We're, uh, we're productive. We're making a contribution. Burnout is on one side, and engagement is on the other side of this spectrum in terms of how much energy we have. And so it's worth fighting to have those conditions if you don't have necessarily have that autonomy uh, where you can control 
uh, what, where, how you work on things. And if you're a manager, man, check the environment you're creating if you find that people have these conditions. Because they're not just burnt out. Their minds aren't just suffering. Uh, their productivity is as well in, in terms of engagement. Why not just push yourself until you burn <laughs> out, relapse, and then go again? <laughs> why, why is that not an acceptable solution? Well, because it's a, a recipe for misery, <laughs> you know, and I think it comes down to what you value too, you know, and there's nothing wrong with valuing accomplishment. You know, accomplishment does lead us to savor our lives less. Uh, that was another interesting field of research is the, the uh, subject of savoring, which is just the process of enjoying uh, experiences because just because we experience something positive does not mean that we'll enjoy it. You know, I'm drinking this amazing delicious cup of of jasmine green i think uh I, you know just like last episode i remember drinking a little green tea with you Mitt. um and just because i simp on this amazing green tea does not mean that i will enjoy the experience just because we experience something positive doesn't mean we'll internalize it and generate positive emotions from it and the more we actually strive to accomplish the less likely we are to savor and enjoy our lives and uh, and luxuriate in in the positive experiences that comprise our day, and so if you value accomplishment, you know there's nothing wrong with having some hustle as long as you have a, a direction. But I think so much of the advice out there that you know we should hustle until we have this empty tank uh, assumes that accomplishment is the only thing that is worth valuing. And really values came up a, a lot in this uh, journey that I embarked on. We need to manifest our values through our daily actions. And I glossed over this, you know, a couple paragraphs ago and when we were chatting. But, you know, when we can observe ourselves manifesting our values through our actions, that's the process through which meaning is made, right? If we value kindness, and we can express that through volunteering, we're going to have a more meaningful experience than somebody who doesn't value kindness because we can observe ourselves going through that process. Uh, if we value service, if we value connection and we can observe ourselves manifesting those things, we're going to feel like we're making a bigger difference, maybe even a bigger difference than we actually are a lot of the times. Uh, but it really does come down to values and realizing that there is a, a complexity of values that lies at the core of who we are that we deserve to express in, in how we act. Accomplishment being maybe one of them, but by God, hopefully not the only one. You would hope so. I mean, one <clears throat> of the interesting things that I've learned this year is people for in the modern world, a lot of people are very happy to give up the thing that they want in order to achieve the thing which is supposed to get it. So people yeah. will give up yeah. happiness in order to mm -hmm. achieve success in yeah. the hopes that their success will afford them happiness. Yeah. You think, hang on a second, I'm sure you know about the <laughs> the story of the American businessman and the, the fisherman that's out on the water. And he says, you know, if you built this up as a business, then you would be able to sell more and maybe you'd be able to employ a bunch of people. And then after a while, you'd be able to own a factory and you'd have all of these fish. And he said, well, why? And he says, well, if you do all of that, then you'd be able to spend all of your day fishing in a boat on your own. You go, well, that's my life already. And I do yeah. wonder how much <laughs> overcomplication comes from people um, trying to go the long way around in order yeah. to achieve happiness. And I think that success is one of the easy traps that that gets into. It is so true. Yeah, exactly. And 
in so much of, of the modern world, it tells us what we need to do to be happy, like accomplish more, generate more status. But the the last place we should be looking for happiness is the modern world. I mean, look around. The modern world is not happy. Uh, people can't savor experiences like they used to. People rush past the most beautiful moments of their life, right? Time with family, uh, time with these deep experiences, time that they could otherwise connect with what they value to distract themselves and to pursue greater accomplishment, things that pull us out of whatever it is that we're experiencing and whomever it is that we're with. And it's this, it, it's this disconnect between what we usually value most deeply on this personal level and what the world around us values on this cultural level. And every single one of us has a disconnect in that regard. No, Not one of us, unless we never reflect on what we value or who we are or what our mission is, what our purpose is, um, unless we never reflect, you know, if we never reflect, we'll have perfect alignment to our culture and then we'll become even more miserable. <laughs> Yeah. What did you learn about burnout from a either a neuroscience or a uh, evolutionary theory perspective? I mean, yeah. why would burnout be an adaptive response, and what's going on inside of the brain and body when we uh, hit it? Yeah. So our body, it turns out, gets used to whatever stress we provide us with, and it gets so used to it sometimes that it gets fed up with having to go through the whole uh, rigmarole of generating that stress response, uh, you know, to that spike of cortisol levels, our pupils dilating, our heart rate elevating to, to mobilize, to face down a threat, which was usually physical. Those These days we're just you know, sitting in front of our email clients stewing over one negative message. Uh, and so burnout on this biological level is a refusal of our body to generate a stress response in response to something that our, our, our ancient mind usually perceives as a threatening situation. And I use the example of measuring my own cortisol levels in the book. So I had uh, this, uh, it was a saliva cortisol test, so it's not as reliable as a blood cortisol test. Um, but I had my levels measured when I was going through this period of burnout just for sheer curiosity's sake. And there's kind of the normal range of cortisol, a cortisol response to a threatening situation. Cortisol, of course, being a, a primary stress hormone. And our cortisol levels usually spike in the morning, which is good, right? Because that's what mobilizes us to, to do the day, to get out of bed, to, to take on whatever the day might offer us. And then they kind of trail off as our energy uh, goes down throughout the day. And I noticed when my own levels came back that they had basically flatlined. Uh, there was no cortisol spike in the morning. Uh, there was no kind of uh, rise in the middle of the day and it just kind of flatlined all day long. And so, in other words, regardless of the stressful situation that we experience when we're burnt out, we can't generate the, the mental resources to overcome whatever stressful situation is presented to us. Um, and that's where that feeling of exhaustion, cynicism, uh, being unproductive comes from. Some stress is good. 
right? Stress provides us with meaning. If you removed all the stressful episodes from your life, you'd also remove all the meaning from your life. You'd remove the weddings, the anniversaries. You'd remove the weird Thanksgiving meals with family. You'd remove the the most challenging moments of your life too. But too much stress does deplete this capacity for a stress response over time. And that, that's what the research shows on the subject of burnout, is burnout is the refusal of our body and our mind to mobilize to a, res- a stressful situation. It's when our stress response flatlines, and it is the ultimate manifestation of chronic stress in our work and in our life that usually comes from those six areas. So it's kind of like your body just giving up and saying, yeah. I, I, I'm carrying too heavy of a weight. I'm not going to respond to the stress anymore. And my solution yeah. for this is to completely kill all yeah. motivation to make you feel um, doubtful yeah. about the future and to dial down your ability to be productive. Exactly. It's not working anyway, so why keep generating it? Let's say that there's someone listening now. We're getting, coming toward the back end of the year. Um, lots of people yeah. will have worked very, very hard, or maybe we're going into the new year, and you just think, God, I, 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 all of these things that Chris is talking about, it, it feels like that's me, like just yeah. taking off all of the different elements and maladies that you've described. Mm-hmm. How should somebody that is currently dealing with burnout get out the other side of it? Yeah, burnout is a fascinating phenomenon for that reason, and and there's so much that in- influences how burnt out we are. But I think keeping kind of an eye on the ball that chronic stress is what causes that phenomenon of burnout. Uh, Chronic stress is, you know, we've all heard the term, but really dissecting the sources of chronic stress we face in our life. So we have two kinds of stress that we face all day long, day in, day out, every single day. There's acute stress, which is the once-off moment. It's, you know, the traffic jam on the way to the airport. It's the once-off argument with your spouse that's a huge pain to get through, and it it's what forces you to grow. But it's the chronic stress is the no good, very bad kind of stress that we face repeatedly. Uh, instead of the argument with our spouse, it's the irreconcilable feelings we have when we see their dumb, stupid face. Uh, when we, you know, instead of the traffic jam, it's the it's the traffic we encounter every day in rush hour on our way to the office. That's like an hour and a half on the other side of town. Really understanding the stress that exists in your life is the recipe for overcoming Uh, this burnout phenomenon. So first of all, you know, dissect those six areas where the chronic stress, because that's where you should spotlight. Those are the kind of petri dishes in our work that this stress tends to metastasize and and grow and expand to, to fit a level that we don't really have the capacity to cope with. But then we have all the stress that's hidden in our life uh, all throughout our days. So anything threatening, that you pay attention to over the course of the day is likely a source of hidden chronic stress in your life. Um, You know, there was uh, one study that was conducted around the uh, 2013 Boston Marathon bombings, and the team of researchers looked at two groups of people. Uh, The first group of people were those who watched six or more hours of news coverage about the bombings, and the second group of people were runners in the actual marathon. And what the team of researchers found was those who watched six or more hours of news coverage about the bombings were more likely 
to develop post-traumatic stress disorder and they experienced a higher level of chronic stress than those who were in the marathon and personally affected by it. Uh, and so that that's shocking to me. You know, encountering studies and statistics are usually not that motivating. They usually don't drive us to action. But that one was kind of a holy shit moment. Uh, is this really how my mind interprets the news? Uh, so I compartmentalized the news checking to just one newspaper each and every day. Um, I compartmentalized social media time to uh, one block within the middle of the workday so I could just get it done and get on with my life. Uh, anything else that I want, I eliminated one threatening, not, not threatening, but one toxic relationship uh, in my life over the course of this project to great success. It kind of freed up a lot of mental and emotional bandwidth. And so really dissecting the chronic, list it if you want. List every source of stress you face over the course of the day. Uh, divide it into chronic stress and acute stress. And under chronic stress, do mind the stuff that's hidden because all this stuff can lead us away from calm and towards anxiety as well, not just uh, this burnout. Okay, so <clears throat> somebody has realized, wow, I'm watching way too much of the news and the... yeah. CCP's algorithm on TikTok is making me feel like I want to throw myself out a window. Seriously, yeah. All the rest of it. Um, but they're still stuck in this particular embodied state. Is there anything that you've found as you're in burnout? This is a an ejector uh, button that you can push, which is going to help to actually really reinvigorate you um, if you are feeling cynical, unproductive, low in energy, yeah. demotivated. Um, what yeah. were the quickest ways that you found to get yourself back from that? Yeah. So one simple way is to define productivity hours every single day. Uh, burnout has traditionally been defined as a workplace phenomenon. And that's not to say that it still is. Uh, we have stress that comes in from every direction of our life right now, uh, from our personal lives to our work lives. But defining boundaries around that pursuit of productivity at work is one of the most powerful strategies uh, that I personally like to deploy every single day. So at the start of the day, I'll choose when I start to care about productivity and I'll define when I'll stop caring about productivity. Uh, these days it's around 10 to 6 and so I have the mornings uh, for just starting things off slow and deliberately. and carving out a bit of time for meditation and reading and just having this slow morning that can lead to this calm, uh, deliberate day. Um, and, and then having this wind down ritual at the end of the workday uh, where I can choose to no longer care about accomplishment. And so, you know, that goes back to that accomplishment mindset as well, is when we're in this acquisition mentality, this acquisition mentality leads us away from this presence, this calm in our life. Uh, and so the more we focus on acquiring, the less we actually enjoy ourselves. Uh, and so this, these productivity hours can kind of serve that double purpose of limiting your workload, uh, gaining more control over your day, having that reward at the end of the day. So even if these uh, external circumstances aren't put around your the boundaries of your work by somebody else, you can choose to, uh, to do this yourself. And if you're not paid to be on call, don't be on call. 
if you're not paid to be connected in the evenings, don't connect in the evenings. And I think that the irony of this is it's often by stepping back that we become more productive. You know, it's by stepping back, we actually recharge. We can actually uh, spend more time in the analog world and not just stare at screens all day long. Uh, the, the most calming, energizing parts of our life are found in the analog, not in the digital. Uh, we can actually step back from this big source of chronic stress in our life and turn to the hopefully more acute sources of chronic stress and meaningful or not chronic acute stress in our personal lives. And so defining boundaries around that practice uh, is critical. That bleed out from Mm -hmm. a period of productivity into the laptop is still open. I'm still working away. I've got something in the back of my mind that needs to be done. It's just, it permeates everything, right? The entire fabric of your life is ambiently anxious because yeah. there is always the option to do work. You could always be doing work. Yeah. Everybody could always be scouting All the time. scouting for more clients or, yeah. or networking more effectively or spending time building up their LinkedIn profile or <laughs> whatever it is, right? Researching yeah. the next piece of content that they're going to write. And yes, the I read a while ago that the ancient Greek word for work was translated as not at play which was interesting because mm. the set point that we see now is that play is an aberration and work is the set. Yeah. Previously, it was the other way around, that play is the set point and work was the aberration. Work was the thing you had to yeah. get done. And I, I always like thinking about that in relation. It might be total bollocks, but I always like thinking about it <laughs> as like a concept. Um, <clears throat> when it comes to this sort of, you, you've mentioned anxiety a couple of times there. What's the yeah. difference in your mind or relationship between burnout, anxiety, calm, productivity? Yeah. How do all of those things fit together? Oh, so much comes to mind, man. That's a blank check of a question. <laughs> it, it's uh, it, it, I, I find the relationship between these things absolutely fascinating. And, you know, this was <laughs> and maybe I'm weird in this way. Like I, I used to see uh, the, the therapist I saw, I, I started seeing her when there's, I didn't perceive anything wrong <laughs> in my life or in my mind. I was just curious to to untangle what was happening up up there in my head. And this is, this kind of has a similar vibe to me where just sheer curiosity uh, pulled me forward into this journey. But first of all, between calm and anxiety. So this was one of the more fascinating uh, elements that I uncovered on this journey because I was never really compelled by calm. Uh, The only time I've really ever uh, felt the need to find calm in my life is when I've become anxious, uh, when I've wanted just that anxiety to go away. And in my head, anxiety was, speaking of spectrums, uh, anxiety was always the spectrum that went from zero anxiety all the way to this intolerable level of anxiety. Uh, But the research shows that anxiety and calm are opposite ends of the same spectrum, where we relate to our thoughts either in a positive way or a negative way, and our mind is either agitated or it is still. Uh, And so those two variables determine where we are are on the spectrum. But what this means is that we can go past the point of no anxiety and travel further down on this road to calm and continue to garner a lot of the benefits that a less anxious mind has. And one of those 
to hit another uh, keyword in the question is productivity. And this product, this relationship between anxiety, calm, and productivity is fascinating. Uh, because if I ask you, you know, uh, let, let's say you have to give a presentation to a thousand people in 15 minutes. And, you know, all, all that is on your mind is this presentation, of course, because it's 15 minutes from now. You want to do a good job. Uh, and if I asked you in that same moment, you know, 15 minutes before this talk, hey, you mind reading this article that I wrote and giving me feedback? Or, hey, do you mind, you know, digesting and summarizing this journal article? Or do you mind, you know, doing any bit of knowledge work? By God, you would have a, a, a very challenging time doing it. <laughs> and, and this is the effect that anxiety has on our cognitive performance. Um, when we work with an anxious mind, it's for this reason that our work takes longer. Uh, you know, I, I break down how about eight hours of real actual work takes us about 10 hours because anxiety actually reduces our cognitive capacity. This goes back to our last conversation on this idea of our working memory capacity, our attentional space, this mental scratch that pad that we use to process whatever it is that we're doing in the moment. Anxiety shrinks our working memory capacity uh, by about 20%. So might not sound like a lot, but when our work takes 20% longer, eight hours of work takes around 10 hours, especially when you uh, add in the other factors that lead us to even a greater decline in productivity. Uh, we become more aware of the threats that are surrounded by us. We become more susceptible to distraction. Uh, when we're in an anxious state, our mind is more stimulated. Uh, again, a higher level of mental activity. And the more stimulated our mind is, the more we wish to keep it at that state. And so we're more susceptible to uh, dopaminergic distraction, any distraction that releases a hit of dopamine in our mind, which is also uh, considered, when you look at the research, to be an enemy uh, of presence and calm. Uh, not completely. Uh, it's more complex than that, I, I found, uh, digging through these ideas. But it's fascinating just how much of a cognitive limiter anxiety is. But you look at people who are calm under pressure, that calmness that we can cultivate in our life, um, it is a wellspring that lives at the heart of what makes us productive and what makes life uh, meaningful. It leads us to presence. It leads us to focus. It leads us to be steady and have this attention uh, and this confidence that regardless of what happens around us, we are where we need to be, we're doing what we need to be doing, and we can focus on it without our anxious mind tugging at our thoughts. And I actually think eight hours of work takes far, far longer than 10 hours and when you work with an anxious mind. And if you notice you know, that you have less time than before, you have less attention than before, you know, the anxiety is, it's kind of a hidden factor that influences our productivity. <clears throat> it's one we never think about, but it's one that influences us all day long. We might not have that same uh, effect that we do before we're going on stage, but we have a similar effect that limits our cognitive performance only all day long when we're working with this anxious mind. Isn't there something funny about the fact that most people who are pushing very hard, who are type A go-getters, are creating an environment 
in which their mind is less productive in service of being more productive. I'm going yes, to push myself. Yes. I'm going to continue to go harder. But yeah. what you're actually doing is applying more brake whilst you apply more uh, accelerator at the same time. Exactly. And even on a neurological level, if you look at the networks of our brain that are activated when we're in this acquisition mentality uh, versus when we're present with something. So presence, you know, it sounds like a hippy dippy term, but presence is just being able to focus on what you're doing. Uh, presence is the process through which we actually become more productive. And if you look at the networks of our brain that are activated when we're in an acquisition mentality versus focused on something in the here and now, they're anti-correlated with one another. So the acquisition mentality is primarily structured on top of the neurochemical dopamine, um, so much so that a lot of researchers refer to dopamine, dopamine as the molecule of more, uh, whether it's more accomplishment or more stimulation, uh, whereas networks of presence uh, are centered around serotonin, oxytocin, which leads us to, to feel proud and connected and happy with what we're doing. And it's fascinating how we... You know, I feel the extra drive that a lot of people have compensates for this fact that they have less energy Correct. in a lot of cases Correct, yes. simply because they spend more time, you know, trying to manifest this value of accomplishment all day long. But because of that countervailing force, it's probably a wash, you know, in terms of just how much further you get. You might as well enjoy things while you're doing them. Well, you might as well become more present in what you're doing. And, you know, this is, I think, the goes back to my philosophy of productivity is product, productivity advice exists to optimize the, the benefits and the contributions of our work. You know, we should feel as though our work is making more of a difference. And we do when we're more present. I wonder if an element of this is to do with laziness as well, that if yeah. you are working more for longer periods of time, you actually can afford to be less focused. You can apply yeah. less effort to it. And running twice the distance at half the speed yeah. is significantly easier than running half the distance at twice the speed. Yeah. And this goes back to that whole idea of productivity hours. And it seems like such a simplistic tactic, but I think one of the reasons it works so well is it has sort of a deadline effect. Uh, and so if you have a full week's worth of work in front of you and it's Monday and somebody says to you, hey, you want this all expenses paid uh, trip to Australia, but it leaves on Wednesday, you'll probably find a way to accomplish all of that week's worth of work between Monday and Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, depending on how this analogy is structured. And you'll probably find a way because of this deadline effect to accomplish it all. And it's just the deadline effect. When we have less time for something, that time limiter forces us to expend more energy over that shorter distance of time so we can get the thing accomplished. And we should always have a bit of time pressure behind what we're doing. Um, no time pressure is an episode for laziness. It's, it's, a, it's a sign that our work is expanding to fit how much time we have available for its completion, uh, which is often called Parkinson's Law. Um, you know, our, our work will expand. You know, it's, it's, this, it's this thing we have to compress. So if you don't feel as though you always have a bit of time pressure, not too much, too much creates 
yet another source of chronic stress. When our workload eclipses our capacity to get it done in a major way, that's a contributor to burnout. It's a contribute to to anxiety as well. But we should always there is this Goldilocks zone of time pressure, uh, and if you don't have it most of the time, you're probably working too many hours. Let's say that there's someone listening who is a type A go-getter. They like the idea of accomplishments. They like yeah. the idea of achieving and being in acquisition mode. Yeah. And they don't like the idea of leaving a lot on the table, but they also don't like the idea of being burned out and this ambient mm-hmm. anxiety and the stress and the neurosis and all that. Yeah. What have you come to believe about the balance between not leaving a lot on the table, about maximizing what you can achieve, about actually going out there and getting it and getting after it, whilst having this more holistic view of the self and of work. Uh, Is it possible for these two things to exist side by side? Yeah, and and so much of this uh, journey for me was finding that balance. You know, I, I want to make a big contribution through the work that I do. And I also don't want to be miserable. And I also don't want to be anxious. And I want to enjoy the, the things that I create. And a, a big discovery over this journey for me was realizing that, you know, th- this connection between dopamine, which leads to mental stimulation and anxiety and accomplishment. And how I've come to see things, and this is a way that I like to find balance in my own days, is every single thing we tend to over the course of the day uh, exists at a different height of stimulation. And so a different height of mental stimulation, depending on how much dopamine something releases. And so the size of the dopamine hit we get, it's it fluctuates based on genetics. It uh, fluctuates based on how much something directly affects our life. Uh, but you can kind of divide by you know, the same amount for things online, because most things online don't directly affect our life that we see. Um, what really differs in the things we encounter online is the relative novelty of the information. Uh, novelty, if something is surprising, it releases a far greater dopamine hit than something that isn't. Um, and so, you know, online we can kind of sort things by novelty, but every single thing we tend to over the course of the day releases a varying level of uh, of dopamine. And so it, it exists at a different height of stimulation, a different altitude. So hard drug use would be at the very top, which leads to a huge dopamine surge and then a plummet afterward. Uh, beneath that, it might be social media. It might be the the super stimuli we tend to online. These you know highly exaggerated versions of things that were uh, by default our our mind is wired to crave and enjoy. So pornography is a great example of this too. This highly uh, artificial uh, thing that our brain is wired to crave. Uh, these exist in the analog world too. So takeout, anything on most things on Uber Eats. Uh, this is my escape of choice. Um, is you know that stuff is high. It's a super stimuli. It's highly dopaminergic. So that exists at a higher height of stimulation. But then you start working downwards in these heights of stimulation, and in the middle band are these activities that you were just describing. Uh, This middle band is where we usually make our contribution. It's things that are less, uh, they release less dopamine than other things in our life, but here lies writing. Here lies playing an instrument. Here lies having coffee with a friend and resisting the 
the urge to rise to a new height of mental stimulation by checking your phone, staying in that band. Beneath that are the most calming activities that we can tend to throughout the day. You know, towards the bottom are, uh, you know, just lying on the couch and letting your mind wander. Might be at the very bottom. Watching a campfire, you know, just watching the flames dance and uh, kind of letting the conversation that's happening fade in and out at the same time. Nature, right? Hiking through nature might be towards the bottom. But different bands on this chart of mental stimulation, we can actually draw a chart of our own, and I highly recommend doing so, charting the activities that you tend to throughout the day to get a feel of what your average stimulation height is and get a feel for the ways that the different activities you tend to throughout the day make you feel. Uh, generally speaking, we want to lower our mental stimulation height because that is what leads us to make a bigger contribution. That is what leads us to also find that balance of productivity, but also uh, calm and also enjoyment and also uh, accomplishment and also optimizing the contributions uh, of our work, but also how our work makes us feel. That is the ideal band. And it's the most productive. It happens to be the most productive band as well. Um, instead of rising to these heights of stimulation that uh, are difficult to come down from, we find this enjoyment and this presence and this deep connection with whatever it is that we're doing. That's the place we want to be. So thinking, it, you know, maybe not necessarily in terms of laziness, um, even though it's kind of a lazy way to spend time to be at a high altitude, it's it's kind of leaning on distraction and technology to do our thinking for us and presenting the most uh, dopaminergic morsels of content to us. Um, it takes a bit of work to be further down in that imaginary chart, but that's where the benefits are. What if someone feels guilty when they're relaxing? Oh, who doesn't? <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's such a such a big part of that relaxation guilt uh, comes from the fact that we are terrible at measuring our productivity. Uh, and so we feel guilty when we're not making progress towards something. You know, because we value progress so much, and maybe more so because the world around us values progress to such an extreme level, uh, we feel a disconnect with our behavior and those cultural values. But I would make the argument that <clears throat> there there is immense productivity to be found in relaxation. So, th you know, one simple example, of, we talked about scatter focus last time, that, that mental uh, mind-wandering mode of our mind. But if you're a leader or if you're a creator or if you're in, in a position where your thoughts can lead to you making a difference or you generating an idea can lead to you making a difference. There is pride to be found in this relaxation and letting our mind come down to a new lower level of mental stimulation. Uh, so uh, going on a walk is a simple example of this. If, if you're a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you know you have a meeting and you blow it off to take a walk in the in the park around your campus, that walk might lead you to an insight that turns your company from a, a, a $100 billion company into a $1 trillion company. One walk, right? That's the power. That's the value of an idea. 
you look at, you know, say Bob Iger or somebody wa- walking around, Steve Jobs walking around, at Tim Cook, who I, I probably actually did this, <laughs> turned Apple into a trillion dollar company. You know, if you look at Tim Cook taking a walk, a stroll around the Apple campus, you think, oh man, why is he slacking off? He's not even listening to anything on his phone. You know, he's not listening to a podcast. He's not using that time to get ahead. Um, and this goes back to how we often are terrible at measuring our productivity. We often look to busyness as a proxy measure for how productive we are. Even though busyness is really no different from an active form of laziness when we don't le- when it doesn't lead us to accomplish anything of importance like when we're at that high altitude of stimulation. But when we look to how much we actually accomplish, when we look to the results that we generate for how we spend our time, it, it can be profound. So the ironic thing about investing in calm and overcoming anxiety is a big part of me feels less productive now than than I used to. But when I look at my accomplishments list at the end of the week, which I keep every week, and uh, you know to kind of maintain the con- you know measurements of the contributions I make each each and every week, I contribute far more right now with a calm mind and with a mind that wanders and generates ideas than I did in you know a whole month of directionless hustle a lot of the time. And th- this goes to that acquisition mentality, that idea of this mindset of more. Goals without endpoints are useless, right? We so often have this striving that we just settle into by default that doesn't lead us to contribute anything. But when we measure our actual contributions, uh, that's when we realize just how productive we are. Sorry, I feel like I went off for like 10 minutes there. Like I worked up talking about this. Stuff. Not at all. I feel <laughs> it feels a little bit to me like what people are optimizing for is a sense of hustle. It's like they're actually chasing yeah. the hustle itself as opposed to the outcomes that the hustle is supposed to achieve. Yeah. And this is what would appear to be one of the fundamental differences that you have discovered. I'm not yeah. supposed to be pursuing the degree of difficulty or pain or sacrifice or yeah. effort that I go through. Yeah. I'm bothered about the outcomes on the other side of it. That's what yeah. I'm optimizing for. Exactly. And we so often look to the measures that you just mentioned. You know, We look at how exhausted we are at the end of the day and think, oh, I'm so exhausted. I must be productive. We wear it as a badge of honor as well, right? Exactly. Yeah. We, we have this pride that comes from busyness. Uh, I know a lot of busy people who don't accomplish a single damn thing every day. Um, I know a lot of lazy people who make more of a contribution than, than either of us do, right? It, it, it comes back to deliberateness, I think, at the end of the day. Uh, the most productive people, they don't work more frantically and faster and with this direction. You know, a goal without an endpoint is just a, a fantasy. Um, they, they work with a calm deliberateness on what is truly important. And what they lack in speed, they make up for in intentionality. And ultimately, I think that's what it comes down to. At the end of the day, our intent, our, our level of deliberateness and intentionality is the factor, in speaking of optimization, that's the factor we need to optimize for. We need to optimize for intention because the more we do so, the more we accomplish what we set out to do that should be the ultimate measure of productivity did you do what you set out to do 
whether you were taking in a beach, putting your feet up, drinking a couple of pina coladas, or whether you were clearing out the thousand emails that were building up in your inbox and, you know, bringing somebody new onto your team and re finishing a book that you've had on the go for quite some time. You know, it comes back to our intentions. That's where productivity begins uh, and ends, in my opinion. When it comes down to the strategies that you did in order to be able to find how to become more calm in life, mm -hmm. were, were there anything that is common <clears throat> held calm wisdom, but that you tried and found that it was rubbish, didn't work for you, and yeah. or there was no evidence in the literature to suggest that oh. it's even beneficial? Oh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I, I would say a lot of the self-care strategies out there, uh, the whole idea of self-care uh, was one area that it, it surprised me just how much there was to wade through uh, in that area. And there are definite benefits to yoga. and I, I've been meditating for half an hour a day uh, for well over a decade at this point. But yet somehow I still burnt out and still fell into this pit of anxiety. Uh, and it, it just goes to show that a lot of the self-care strategies out there, meditation most definitely works better than others. Um, most of the, so many self-care strategies are just a Band-Aid solution. You know, if, if you fundamentally hate your job, meditation is not going to help you. You know, it might help you, uh, you know, cope, but it won't fix that underlying issue. Uh, if you're in a in an abusive relationship, for an example, th there or you have one of those in your life with somebody who's close or distant to you, you need to pull these problems out by the root in order for them to stop providing you with chronic stress that might lead you to a point of burnout or anxiety. Uh, and I think that you know, it, more than anything else, when I look at what allowed me to actually welcome more calm into my life and move from that point of high anxiety down to that state of high calmness. It wasn't these like simple tactics. It was really deconstructing my days. And I think that's what we have to do. We don't have to deconstruct our lives. You don't have to go as deep as your values, though that most definitely helps to have kind of a, a reflection in that direction because uh, our mind, we tend to optimize any currency we come into contact with, whether that be money, status, follower count, whatever. Um, and that definitely includes a lot of the currencies we come into contact with in our, in our, in our modern culture that we, by default we want more of without really thinking of why. And so having that values connection is immensely helpful. But we need to go deeper. You know, how much dopamine do you get throughout the day? Um, how much of your behavior is structured on top of dopamine? whether that be in the pursuit of acquiring more or in the pursuit of finding more mental stimulation so you can continue to fly at such a height. That was an uncomfortable truth that I had to face in my own life, uh, is so much of my day was structured around dopamine, and because of that, I never felt satisfied or present in what how, I was how doing. So what, what were you doing? What, like, what were the things you were doing that was chasing dopamine? Yeah, it was just tending to distraction throughout the day. But, you know, I was pretty good at resisting distraction when I was on the clock and working. But when I was off the clock, the easiest way to entertain my mind, I would just turn on YouTube and re receive all these dopamine hits. Um, you know, it was alcohol use. It was takeout. 
use. It was uh, tending to a lot of super stimuli in the form of social media and checking on things that fed my ego a lot of the time. Uh, just checking how many books were selling on a given week. Uh, and I say week, but I would check it multiple times a day. How are the books ranked today? Just to get that that validation boost. And we need to go beyond the quick fixes to ask these these questions and uproot a lot of this this chronic stress in our life. And so I think one shift that occurred with how I think about anxiety is the surface level advice that doesn't go deep enough. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think we need to go deep in order to find calm. I like the analogy of you not being able to meditate your way out of a bad job. Yeah, There is a fundamental issue and some of the symptoms of that problem can be dealt with you're going to give yourself more mindfulness maybe it'll help you be at peace with your dick of a boss or whoever it is you're dealing with yeah but you're still in a shit job you know you're still in a job that you don't enjoy okay so i think a a lot of people are probably in a position very similar to the one that you just described which is uh, very dopaminergically driven um permanently chasing distraction probably when they're on the clock as well as off the clock yeah um what have you done? Dopamine is one hell of a drug. What have you done to be yeah. able to down-regulate how much you're chasing for it? Why are you not looking at the books sold or the news articles or the, yeah. the Instagram likes? Why are you no longer looking at that? Or What were the strategies that allowed you to down-regulate yeah. that? Well, uh, stimulation fasting. You know, I, I found <laughs> it's something I resisted doing for the longest time. Uh, it, often called a dopamine fast, and I, I had heard dopamine fast, you know, mentioned again and again, and, and I, I never really applied it to my own life. But I thought, okay, I'm on this this experiment for calm. Let me try this. And so for a month, I cut out social media, I cut out email on my phone, cut out all the all the stuff that exists at a high height of stimulation, and. I found that the first week or so it was quite restless. It does take our mind time to adjust downward into a new lower level of mental stimulation. But the benefits of doing so are absolutely profound. And I noticed this in the most simple ways. So for an example, I would often tend to just a quick social media check or a quick scroll around on my phone between things. So if a meeting ended at 2.55 and the next meeting was at 3, instead of thinking about the meeting, I would scroll for five minutes. Uh, You know, these distractions kind of filling the gaps of our day like water. One of my friends calls that a holding pattern activity. So oh, I like that. When you're currently just waiting, you're circling the airport, something's about to happen. Yeah. And one of his, this is three years ago on a LifeX episode, uh, and he said, everyone's got a holding pattern activity. And what you want to do is try and make the activity that you use in your holding pattern something that you would want you to do. So yeah. what he did was he bought a Kindle and he put that on his desk and he kept his phone outside of his desk. So if he was in between calls, if he was going to do something, he would pick up his Kindle or he would, he would, maybe he had some other stuff that he was playing about with on his desk. My point being that yeah. um, there's two levels to this, I suppose. One would be substitute what you're doing for something yeah. which is better, but another layer deeper than that would be substitute the chasing of wanting a something for realizing that you don't need to chase anything and just allow yourself to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and with the constraints of the experiment, I noticed 
that happening automatically. Uh, so when I couldn't tend to something, on my, I, I noticed that I was just managing the receipts on my desk, which had been sitting there for months. This stuff happens automatically uh, in an evening without going on YouTube because uh, I wasn't allowed. I deleted the app off the Apple TV. Um, I would just scroll around photos and reminisce about old memories. And I think you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, we need to substitute activities in for these old activities. So there isn't some hole in our life that just we have to awkwardly try to fill with things in the moment. So ones that allow us to feel connected with others and this sense of pride. Uh, I took up piano lessons at the time. My piano is just on the left here. You can see in the video. Very nice. And uh, and so now I have something to do when the call ends a bit early, you know, at this lower level of, of mental stimulation. And, you know, we a dopamine fast for about a month. It's a pain, but it works incredibly, incredibly well. What's the effect? It, the effect is we no longer crave novelty nearly as much. You know, novelty doesn't drive what we do. Uh, and because of that, our mind settles down finally. You know, we finally settle down into a new lower level of mental stimulation where the calm things are. We allow intentions to inform in our mind, um, to, to inform our actions. And so instead of just kind of, you know, frantically moving between objects of attention, uh, choosing whatever option in the moment happens to be the most novel, uh, because we crave dopamine in the moment more than almost anything else, we have that pause before we act. And we allow an intention to form in our mind that, okay, maybe I should just organize these receipts. Or maybe, oh, I have 10 minutes, not five, because they're going to be late. Maybe I should just practice this piece on the piano. And we take control of our behavior significantly more when we're at that lower level. Uh, another uh, example activity that I found remarkably well, I, I mentioned how the networks for presence and for acquisition are anti-correlated with one another, is that science of savoring that I mentioned. So having a savor list, uh, which is just a list of everything you love to enjoy. Uh, here's the fascinating thing. One of my favorite questions, to, and you, everybody should try this, uh, to ask somebody who is really driven uh, in this acquisition mentality, one of my favorite things to ask them is, what do you savor the most in your life? And this stumps pretty much all of the most driven people that I've asked this to. <laughs> um, and the research shows that this idea of savoring, wherein we convert positive experiences into positive emotions. Um, men find it more challenging to do than women. And wealthier people find it more challenging to do than people who are not wealthy because of that acquisition mentality. Um, but having this list of things that we savor is, is a beautiful way of practicing presence each and every day. Uh, it can be as simple as a cup of tea. It can be uh, time with your partner. It can be uh, a good book. It can be a fireplace that you happen to have in the house. It can be an instrument you love to something you love, an album that you love um, to listen to. Whatever it is you love to savor, make a list and deliberately practice this skill of savoring. Indeed, it is a skill. Uh, but what you're really practicing is not only uh, 
optimizing the enjoyment you get out of everyday experiences, but you're actually optim and practicing this skill of switching over this acquisition network to this here and now network. Uh, and the more nimble, nimbly you can switch between these two modes, the, the easier you will find it to be focused and present on whatever it is that you intend to be doing. And so this mental nimbleness that comes from the skill of savoring, indeed it is a skill. We can even savor the past and the future. Uh, we can savor the past by practicing, it's called reminiscence, we've all heard the word, but we just relive in a, a positive experience that happened in our past in our mind um, and visualize it just for a few minutes. Um, savoring, we can also savor the future. And this counts as savoring because we do it in the present. We savor the future. It's called anticipation. And we can do this by counting down the days to an event. We can do this by, uh, you know, just talking about something, some experience that's coming up. But the research shows that counting down, even just counting down the days to an event creates effective memory traces in our mind, kind of a, a path through a forest that we walk over again, which leads us to enjoy the experience even more when it actually does happen, which it lets us extract more meaning and enjoyment out of our time. So dopamine, fasting, savoring, just a couple strategies to different effects, right? Lowering the stimulation level and being able to switch between the acquisition mentality and the, uh, the present here and now mentality. Are there some components of savoring, uh, individual skills that contribute to being effective at the overall job of savoring? Yeah. Uh, well, there are kind of sub-components to savoring. Uh, so luxuriating is one of these. So think of a cat, you know. So I, I just got to get, cats are on my mind. I just, we just got a kitten a few uh, weeks ago. Her name is Eleanor. Uh, think, of, think of a cat soaking in the sun, luxuriating in the sun. That, that's one way we can savor an experience. Uh, gratitude counts as savoring as well. So the practice of thanksgiving, uh, recalling three things that we're grateful for each and every day. This is a, this is a ritual my wife and I uh, have developed. Every night when we're going to sleep, before we kind of fall asleep, we recall three things that we're grateful for. And people ask, like, do you run out of things? And it's like, hell no, no. We, 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 we could probably list 10 each and every day. Um, marveling is yet another uh, things. So when we uh, feel a sense of awe by something, uh, whether that's kind of even just looking at the window and marveling at the snow, uh, it, it could be, and that actually, by the way, when we uh, see through our whole eyes, including our perif peripheral vision, that has a bonus calming effect when when uh, we feel a sense of awe with something that's visual. But yeah, just, you know, whether it's luxuriating, Thanksgiving, marveling, uh, anticipation, uh, reminiscence, or just uh, mindfully enjoying something in the moment. These all these all count, thankfully. <laughs> all right, Christoph, I appreciate you very much. Thank you for coming on. Where should people go if they want to keep up to date with all the stuff that you do? Yes, sir. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, the book is called How to Calm Your Mind, uh, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. I think it's the best thing I have ever written and i hope you find the same it's wherever books are sold uh i am at chrisbailey.com and my podcast that i do with my wife is called time and attention bonus plug there but yeah the book the main thing thank you so much man all right chris thank you 